Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 17, The Battle of Kadesh. The location of Kadesh was indeed populated for many years dating back to prehistory as the lands of the Levant were known to be somewhat fertile. The site of Kadesh is now a mound called Tel Nebi Mend and it is situated adjacent to the Orontes River although there was likely a fork in the river in ancient times and Kadesh sat right in the middle of the fork. The only way to access Kadesh without a river crossing was from the south. Whoever was living there may well have been approached by the Neo-Sumerians during the 21st century BCE and possibly even the Akkadians could have encountered them shortly before. The largest modern city to Kadesh is the Syrian city of Homs and to the northeast of Homs lies the ancient city of Kutna. Kutna was the most influential local city to Kadesh and so much so that it would actually carve out its own little Near East Kingdom which says the name Kutna and Kadesh would have been under its influence during the early part of the second millennium BCE. Kutna was politically affected by the goings on of its two powerful neighbours Yamhad to the north and the Mari to the east. The Mari would tend to support Kutna as it could provide Mari with a link to the Mediterranean Sea. However, when the Mari were made subjects to the Assyrians under Shamshi Adad I during the 18th century BCE, Kutna effectively became a vassal state of the Assyrians. As we already know, this didn't last too long and the Assyrian state lost a lot of its influence after the time of Shamshi-Adad. With the Mari kingdom disintegrated, this meant little or no protection from the aggressive Yamhad kingdom to the north. It does appear that during the 17th century BCE, Katna would be subjugated by the Yamhad. In the meantime, to the north of the Yamhad kingdom, the mighty Indo-European kingdom of the Hittites was beginning to grow large and threatening. Although the Hittites couldn't do anything to bring Babylon into its realm after they sacked the city in 1595 BCE, they were able to turn their attention closer to home and destroy the Yamhad kingdom, therefore freeing Katna from its grip. The Hittites didn't advance much further down the Mediterranean coast due to the presence of the Mitanni kingdom, who quickly established a sea link via Katna. By now, the Egyptian New Kingdom was in full swing under its 18th dynasty, and it was showing an unhealthy amount of interest in Levantine lands, 
including those under the influence of the Mitanni. This would be when the city of Kadesh would align itself with other local rulers, including those at the city of Megiddo, further south to stand up against the Egyptians under the rule of Thutmose III. However, this sequence of events would lead to the Battle of Megiddo, in which Thutmose would crush the rebellion and put the area under Egyptian control. But this did not last long, as the Mitanni moved back in after Thutmose's lifetime. In the meantime, the Mitanni were being pressurised by the Hittites from their north and the Assyrian element within it. It would only be a matter of time before the Mitanni kingdom would collapse. The Hittites under Sipiluliuma I seemed keen to try to gain control of the lands around Kadesh during the 14th century BCE. After Katna appealed to the Egyptians for help, the Hittites came and destroyed the city and any influence it would have as a city-state for good. The whole area, including Kadesh, was now under Hittite influence. The Egyptians Let us try to summarise the history of Egypt going into this battle. So the original concept of a united Egypt occurred when the small farming societies of the Nile River began to coalesce into one entity in around 3100 BCE. The leader of this Egyptian kingdom would be called the Pharaoh and he would be regarded as divine. Egypt really remained unchallenged and somewhat separate from the politics of the Near East, accruing wealth that enabled it to mature into a very advanced and spiritual society, represented by the mighty pyramid building which took place as funerary monuments and tombs to their deified monarchs. It was the Middle Kingdom monarchs of the early 2nd millennium BCE who would look towards the lands of the Levant as an opportunity for expansion and they did indeed subjugate some of the lands there. The tides would turn as the millennium moved forward though as Asiatic peoples migrated into Egypt restricting them back into their African heartland and eventually taking control. These people would come to be known as the Hyksos. It wouldn't be until the emergence of the new kingdom that the Hyksos would be expelled from Egypt and the Egyptians would start to look outwards once again. There is one major factor about the Hyksos invasion of Egypt that is very relevant to today's podcast and that is their use of chariots. We have absolutely no evidence of chariotry in Egypt before the Hyksos invasion. We are aware that the Hyksos brought chariots with them into Egypt and we are certainly aware that the Egyptians started producing chariots after the Hyksos invasion. So chariots became a vital warfare commodity. The Egyptians realised this and adopted the vehicle. The emergence of the new kingdom of Egypt would really see the intended designs they had on Asiatic lands. Thutmose I would campaign to Kadesh and beyond, all the way up to Carchemish on the Euphrates River. 
the Thutmosid pharaohs would put great efforts into defending these lands against the determination of the Mitanni who would fight back for them in response. Akhenaten appeared to sacrifice foreign success for domestic change during the Amarna period of Egypt and this would signal the period when Hittites who had pushed the Mitanni out of their Levantine lands were able to push Egypt back south of Kadesh. It would come down to the first significant pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, Seti I, to start campaigning back for the lost Levantine lands. This brings us into the 13th century BCE. The Hittites It is believed that the Hittites were an amalgamation of migrating Indo-European peoples from the Eurasian steppe who moved south into Anatolia where they would encounter the resident Hatti culture and this may have happened at the beginning of the second millennium BCE. The Hittites would base their new emerging power base at Hattusha, relatively unchallenged. The mountainous terrain would have been rich in resources such as metals and precious stones so they were in a good position to set the trade rules to their neighbours on all sides. By 1600 BCE the Hittites had moved their borders towards Levantine lands and the Yamhad kingdom. It was around this time that we can see that the Yamhad kingdom disappeared and it is believed to be at the hand of the Hittites who would now have a good long Mediterranean coastline at their disposal. However, the early Hittites were always victims of their own domestic power struggles as kings usurped kings constantly throughout the 16th century BCE. So sustained expansion of borders was somewhat out of the question. What followed was a period of internal consolidation and the use of diplomacy to strengthen their international status. Iron working would have become an important technological advancement for this period too. And although iron was more difficult to work with, it was quite easy to find, and the end result was much more reliable than bronze. The Mitanni had grown stronger during this time and had moved into the former Yamhad lands. So into the 14th century BCE and a time when the Hittites would start flexing their muscles again. After pushing the Mitanni out of former Yanhad region, the Hittites would subjugate the Mitanni and effectively put an end to their ambitions. The Hittites under Sepiluliuma I would then venture down the coast to the Egyptian held coastal city of Byblos and force them out. What happened next was a bizarre set of events between the Hittites and the Egyptians. The Egyptian queen wrote a letter to Sepiluliuma proposing a political marriage alliance between the two kingdoms. Sepiluliuma sent a male family member to Egypt but he was never seen again. Sepiluliuma was enraged and attacked many Egyptian held cities in the Levant. He took many Egyptians prisoner, but they brought disease with them that caused chaos in the Hittite homelands and may have resulted in the death of the king himself. 
entering into the 13th century BCE and the Hittite kingdom came under the leadership of Sipiluliuma I's grandson, Muwatali II. Muwatali would feel the pressure on his lands, not just from the Egyptians in the south, but also from the Assyrians in the east. Ramesses II Ramesses II was the Egyptian pharaoh and the aggressor at the Battle of Kadesh. He was the subject of last week's podcast, where to some degree we set the scene for the battle, without going into too much detail. The work of Ramesses' father, Seti I, was excellent in terms of ensuring that Ramesses was taking over the kingdom in a healthy condition. As a young boy, he was given the ceremonial title of Commander-in-Chief of the Army, and his father did what he could to educate him about the realities of battle by taking him on campaigns with him. Basically, Ramesses II had been well prepared for the job of leading the mighty Egyptian new kingdom and was in the prime of his life going into the Battle of Kadesh. He may have been just a little bit shy of his 30th birthday. No stranger to propaganda, it may have been through these means or by sheer strength of character that he rallied his people to construct great military power at the modern military centre and soon-to-be capital city of the kingdom at Pyramuses. Ramesses had spent the early part of his reign in the 1270s fending off sea raiders on his Mediterranean coastline, which the Egyptians called the Sherdan people. Ramesses would incorporate some of these Sherdan people into his very own Egyptian army ahead of the Syrian campaigns. So Ramesses II was ready to do battle. But what of his opposite number? Muwatali II Muwatali was also the son of an effective ruler, Mershali II. At a time when the Hittite kingdom could have had fortune swing one way or the other, Mershali II took the throne and led successful negotiations with his neighbours to secure his borders. Muwatali would have likely been exposed to this from a young age. It is difficult to know exactly how old Muwatali was at the time of his accession in the mid-1290s, although I tend to suspect he may have been in his 20s, as his father was likely to be a young adult upon his accession, and he reigned for just over 25 years, and he was the eldest son of Mershali. Muwatali would have reigned as king of the Hittites for around 16 years by the time of Ramesses' accession, to Pharaoh of Egypt, so I would suggest that maybe Muwatali was in his 40s by the time of the Battle of Kadesh, significantly older than Ramesses. Muwatali would have had dealings with Ramesses' father, Seti I. These dealings may well have involved Kadesh, as some have suggested that Seti actually ceded the city of Kadesh to the Hittites during this period. I am struggling to find firm evidence of this, however. One thing that we do know is that Muwatali moved the capital of the Hittite kingdom from Hattusha to 
Tahuntasa. This may have been to protect the Hittite kingdom from the troublesome Kaskians to the north, but really there is so little written evidence for the reasons that we are scratching around and taking educated guesses only. It was moved back to Hattusha after Muwatali's lifetime in any case. What we do know is that Muwatali's army was quite technologically up to date. The Hittites knew all about chariot construction and iron weaponry and would have had a great deal of resources within their homelands. So they wouldn't have been too dependent on external trade for that. The Syrian Campaigns The true identity of the Sheridan Sea Pirates could be key to understanding the real catalyst for this round of tension between the Egyptians and the Hittites. Ramesses claimed that the Sheridan were in some way affiliated with the Hittites, so it could be the Hittites' way of testing the new pharaoh. It is reported that Ramesses dealt with the Sheridan sea pirates that raided the Mediterranean coastline of Egypt quite effectively. He then conscripted Sheridan people into his own army, possibly because they had impressive fortitude, possibly because they had special knowledge of the Hittites, or maybe another reason altogether. We are also not completely sure as to whether there was some kind of special arrangement in relation to Levantine lands made by Ramesses' father Seti and the Hittite king Muwatali. There are those who suspect that Seti ceded the city of Kadesh to Muwatali. If this was the case, then it appears that Ramesses was not happy about this arrangement and wanted Levantine lands back under Egyptian authority. It could have been in 1275 BCE that an Egyptian campaign into Syrian coastal lands took place where the Egyptians went to broker some kind of deal with the Amuru kingdom which existed in the lands around Kadesh including the valuable Mediterranean port city of Sumur. It would be after this initial campaign that the big stuff would start happening. It would be at his new military headquarters of Pyramuses that Ramesses II would begin to assemble a huge military force. Estimates suggest that 2,000 lightweight chariots were constructed, something that the Egyptians may not have even realised had existed until the invasion of the Hyksos into Egypt some 400 years previous. These chariots would have a driver and a spearman or a bowman or maybe someone that could do both but essentially they were a horse-drawn two-man vehicle. We also believe that Ramesses had compiled an army of around 20,000 individuals and they were separated into four divisions named after Egyptian deities, Amun, Ra, Set and Ptah. It is believed that Ramesses dispatched a party of 5,000 men to secure the port city of Sumer before the bulk of the army made their way towards Kadesh itself by departing from Pyramuses and heading across Sinai to the Canaanite city of Gaza before 
pressing into Megiddo, the site of a previous Egyptian battle against Asiatics, and then onwards to a small town just south of Kadesh called Shabtunar. Now, I'm going to try to describe the geography of the area. I want you to picture a blank square, which is going to be the blank canvas on which I paint the map for you. I want you to imagine a river entering our map from the north and heading directly south. Now, the river will split into two separate rivers and both of these are going to run off to the south. So now we have what looks a bit like a lowercase letter N hanging on a piece of string. The city of Kadesh is situated right underneath the fork. So you should now be able to see that the city is surrounded by rivers from three sides, the north, the west and the east. The Egyptians would have been approaching from the bottom right hand corner heading northwards. So at some point they would have had to have crossed the river to be able to approach Kadesh from the south. The river is actually called the Orontes River and the crossing point is at that town we mentioned called Shabtuna. Are you with me? If not, don't worry, there will be maps published on the website and the social media pages. We believe it was while the Egyptians were preparing to cross the Orontes at Shabtuna that they managed to capture two Bedouins who had been found loitering around a little bit too close by for comfort. Bedouin is a general term for people of the Arabian desert, so it would be best to assume that these people could be loyal to the rival Hittites. In actual fact, these two Bedouin spies were in the business of providing false information to the Egyptians. The aim of the Bedouins was to convince the Egyptians that the Hittites were 200 kilometres away in Aleppo and that Kadesh had limited defences. Ramesses would not be allowed to hesitate if this was the case. He would have to advance on Kadesh quickly if he were to take the city before the Hittites could aid the city's defence. Ramesses took his own Amun division on ahead. He crossed the Orontes and moved over to the western side of the map, so he would be to the west of the river now. He would move up to a strategical location directly northwest of and overlooking the city of Kadesh and set up camp. It was now the afternoon, so Ramesses decided to send his scouts off. The scouts encountered two other scouts, and these scouts were definitely Hittites. What were they doing here? The two Hittite scouts were captured and taken back to the Egyptian camp where they were tortured for information. This is when reality struck the Egyptians. The Hittites were not 200 kilometres away in Aleppo. The Hittites 
had been waiting for the Egyptians to arrive. They were camped northeast of Kadesh, effectively on the opposite side of the Orontes, and they were ready to attack the Egyptians. This was disastrous for Ramesses, as the other divisions of the Egyptian army had not made it to the Egyptian camp yet. So worried was Ramesses that he sent his vizier and royal princes away from the scene to avoid them all being killed at once. Ramesses was as alone as he would ever be, with just himself and one division of his army against the mighty Hittites. The Hittites were prepared. Facing the Egyptians could have been as many as 27,000 foot soldiers and 3,000 three-man chariots. Bigger chariots than the Egyptians, but this could make them more cumbersome in open field warfare. It was still seriously bad news for Ramesses II and the Egyptian army as the Battle of Kadesh began. The Battle of Kadesh Alongside Ramesses II's viziers and royal princes sent away were also messages to those 5,000 men, if you recall, that had been sent to secure the coastal city of Sumu. However, what Ramesses II really needed was his other divisions who were following on from Sabtuna to catch up and help to present a formation against the Hittites. He absolutely needed, at the very least, to hold off the advancing Hittites to buy himself some time. He was completely on the back foot and an advance on Kadesh was absolutely out of the question now. It was about defence and salvaging as much as possible from a shockingly bad situation. The Ra division of the Egyptian army was somewhat oblivious advancing northwards from Shabtuna. The Hittites quickly crossed the Orontes and attacked the Ra division who was simply not prepared for this attack. The Hittites destroyed the Ra division and all that remained of it were fleeing soldiers desperately trying to reach the relative safety of the Egyptian camp. The temptation was far too much for the Hittites as the opportunity suddenly emerged to pursue the remnants of Ra division all the way up to the Egyptian camp for the intended final attack. Things just could not have gone worse for the Egyptians now on the brink of certain defeat and with their pharaoh exposed, surrounded by his core army only. There was really nothing to lose that wasn't already about to be lost at this stage. The core of Ramesses II's army may have been made up with an international flavour as we do believe that Nubians had been conscripted in the past to the pharaoh's innermost protectors. It may be that the Sheridan were asked to perform this duty and there have even been bronze scales bearing Ramesses II's cartouche found in the Aegean region which suggests that particular Mycenaean Greeks may have also been conscripted. Regardless of where they were from, it would still have been the kind of low numbers that would not have been able to resist the mighty Hittite army. If only Ramesses had more time to gather all of his remaining resources. The Hittites themselves 
then went on to make a tactical error. Their eyes grew big at the sight of the Egyptian camp and rather than regroup and plan the final phase of the battle to eliminate the Egyptian threat altogether, the Hittites advanced with zealousness towards the Egyptian camp with two things in mind, to loot the camp and to destroy the camp. However, this really was just the work of greedy disunity and Ramesses saw this opportunity to counter-attack against the complacent Hittites. All Ramesses needed to do was to buy himself enough time for the Set and Patar divisions to rejoin him from the south and the special elite force sent to Sumer with the special instruction to approach Kadesh from the west. Now there is debate over whether this elite force were a special division of foreign mercenaries which are referred to in texts as the Niarin. These circumstances are what suddenly and surprisingly caused the Hittites to stop and think again. The Hittites actually withdrew from the fray somewhat to the relative safety of the city of Kadesh where Muwatali ordered a wave of a thousand chariots to be sent back to the Egyptian camp. However, it does appear that this was enough time for the various divisions of the Egyptian army, including the mysterious Niarin, to bolster the resource of the Egyptians, and they really hit back at the Hittites hard. Chasing them into a hasty retreat, with many being forced into the Orontes River amid all the chaos. When it came to the chase, the Egyptian two-man chariot proved to be superior to the Hittite three-man, which was so effective during the initial advances. The Hittites were now in need of the refuge of the city of Kadesh. Amazingly, the Egyptians had survived the genial deception and surprise attack which marked the start of the battle, and they weathered the onslaught just long enough for the different divisions of the Egyptian army to regroup and launch a significant counter-offensive. The Egyptians were the winners on the day, but they hadn't achieved what they had set out to do in the first place, and that was to recapture Kadesh and put it under Egyptian control once again. The Aftermath with the Hittites backed up into the city of Kadesh, the only sensible thing for the Egyptians to do was to put the city under siege. This would mean that most of the Egyptian military would have been able to stand down and return to their respective homes. Ultimately, the Egyptians could not sustain the siege, which in some reports state that it took place over a number of months. Other sources actually make no mention of the siege, and simply say that the Egyptians abandoned the battlefield. For the Hittites, it was a piece of cunning that could have worked out to be one of the most disastrous episodes in Egyptian history. It was quite possibly the fact that the Hittites launched the first offensive that may have caused enough damage and provided the Hittites with enough time to get to the end of the day still in possession of Kadesh. For the Egyptians, it was a failure. The purpose of the campaign was to capture Kadesh. The outcome of the campaign was a fight for survival, which Ramesses and the Egyptians survived. Ramesses 
was not about to return to Egypt and declare this a failure, however, and it was reported as a great victory for the Egyptian army, with the crowning achievement being how Ramesses was able to survive the Hittite onslaught completely on his own, with only his god, Amun, to protect him. Great reliefs and artworks on his monuments would celebrate these achievements. It is this that gives Ramesses II his reputation as a master propagandist. Both the Hittites and the Egyptians were still active in the Levant in subsequent years following the battle, each of them stealing little bits of land that they barely had the resources to keep hold of, especially with all of the fickle peoples of the Levant who neither saw themselves as Egyptian or Hittite and appeared to side with whoever was offering them the best deal on any given day. With the emergence of a third party showing interest in the lands of the Levant, namely the Assyrians, it was time for both parties to proceed with extreme caution, as neither the Hittites nor the Egyptians wanted the Assyrians to muscle into this area and potentially threaten their heartlands with all the wealth that would come with the vital link to the Mediterranean. Muwatali II actually expanded his area of influence in the Levant after the Egyptians left the scene of Kadesh, so that in itself strongly points towards the Hittites coming out the stronger of the two empires in the aftermath. However, it was only two short years after this battle that Muwatali II died. This would actually serve to cause a bit of civil unrest in the kingdom of Hattusha, as Muwatali's brother did not accept the accession of Muwatali's son, Mursali III, and within seven years had successfully usurped the throne and run Mursali out of Hattusha. He would rule as Hattusheli III. Hattusheli III was the Hittite king who was responsible for the famous peace treaty between the Hittites and Ramesses II's new kingdom of Egypt. The peace treaty was effective and ensured that the two kingdoms would not attack each other and would even come to each other's aid should a third party attack either of them. This is widely accepted to be a nod towards the aggressive Assyrian Empire. Matushali would even provide at least one Hittite princess as a bride for Ramesses, and one would be Hattusili's own daughter who would come to be known as Marthorneferuri, one of the great royal wives of Ramesses II. Ramesses II himself would live a long and successful life as Pharaoh of Egypt and leave a legacy that would extend down to future dynasties of Egypt. Ramesses II would be deified during his lifetime and idolised after it, when he died at the age of 90, outliving many of his own children. Egypt was still strong at the end of the 13th century BCE, when he did eventually make his journey to the afterlife. At this point, the Hittite kingdom as a whole was facing dire times. The once powerful Hittites were progressively being weakened by the mighty Assyrians to its east and the rebellious tribes to its north and west. 
the entire kingdom itself collapsed in very mysterious circumstances when the last of the Hittite elite abandoned the capital city of Hattusha before it was physically destroyed. The Hittite kingdom was finished sometime early in the 12th century BCE. As for the Egyptians, after the lifetime of Ramesses II, the new kingdom seemed to fall apart from within in a slow, drawn-out death of a golden age brought about by internal dissent and external attacks from both land and sea. The kingdom itself would descend into the kind of power struggles that fragmented the kingdom during the first and second intermediate periods. Egyptian lands would then be largely subject to various foreign rulers as the world entered the first millennium BCE and the glory days of what we regard as ancient Egypt were over. Next time on the History of the World podcast we will be looking at Egyptian religion and trying to make sense of all of what we've discovered over the last few podcasts. It should be a very interesting episode. And I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's podcast on the Battle of Kadesh. It's probably the most famous ancient battle for which we have good documentation for. So we've just got time now to give you some of the usual end of the broadcast updates with what's going on in the general world of the History of the World podcast. Of course, we were asking you to to vote for us in the British Podcast Awards and thanks to those of you who did. Now, it's very, very, very unlikely that we're going to win any award or even that anyone has ever even heard of us, perhaps maybe one or two people if I'm lucky. However, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that we're actually doing something about the podcast and this is the most important thing. So I say it to you every week, obviously, If you can financially support the podcast, that would be wonderful. Just go to our Patreon page and make a monthly donation. It really does help and make a difference. But if you can't do that or you don't have the resource to be able to do that, there are more ways to support the podcast. As long as you rate and review us on as many forums as possible and tell people about this podcast, just interact with it do what you need to do, share the pages on your social media, on your Facebook, on your Twitter accounts, Tumblr, and uh, also if you have the ability to tell a friend who's interested in history, anything like that at all, it all serves to help the podcast. So please try and be active for the podcast and it will help us to propel ourselves into greater places in the future. Now, interestingly enough, the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages, as I mentioned last week, have posted a video version of episode six on the late Bronze Age collapse. Uh, It seems to be very popular. We've had over 20,000 views on the the video itself and uh, almost 500 likes. It's not going to be long before it reaches 500 likes on the video. So uh, thank you very much to Nick Barksdale for producing that he runs the study and uh, the study of antiquity and the middle ages uh, channel on youtube and he has a massive amount of followers and a large resource of videos so if you've not been there yet i encourage you to go and visit it 
it's the study of antiquity and the middle ages and the easiest way to access it if you're familiar with the history of the world podcast is just go to the volume two link on the history of the world podcast website uh, go down to episode six where it says youtube just click on that to the right of the download button go to youtube click on that and then you should access the youtube channel and be able to interact and explore the study of antiquity in the middle ages those of you who do follow the social media pages, uh, more especially Facebook and Twitter, will be very well aware that I did post something recently to say that we had almost, very, very nearly, 100,000 all-time listens to the podcast. And we're not even a year old yet. Well, you know, it's my, it's my pleasure to announce that we have gone over 100,000 listens to the History of the World podcast not even a year old, and that's a huge number. I can't believe it, to be quite honest with you. I never thought that it would attract such numbers. And there obviously is also a very big podcast listener community out there as well for these numbers to be generated. And I I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of the podcast world. So for, for that amount of people to be listening to the podcast is an absolute thrill and a pleasure. So thank you ever so much to everyone who's interacted with the podcast in any way whatsoever. Um, in my opinion, you've all contributed in your own little way and you should be very proud of yourselves. Last week, I encouraged the Canadians to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and uh, sadly, we only got one. Well, I say sadly, actually, it's, it's nice that I got one person who responded to that. So then I challenged New Zealand and no one's done it. So that's a shame, isn't it? I mean, that's the best way that you can support the podcast. Go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you choose to listen to them. Maybe not a lot of people listen to uh, Apple Podcasts version of it um, from New Zealand. Perhaps that, that could be something to do with it. Who knows? I don't know. But please do rate and review the podcast. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, rate and review. That's really, really helpful to the podcast let's have a look at the latest apple podcast reviews that we've had i'm going to go through them uh, we had uh, welsh i am from the uk who said little gem so pleased to have discovered this little gem of a podcast thought-provoking considered informative and well presented thank you very much the the next one is from jim dandy from the usa very educational and entertaining. James Callahan here. I am a truck. I'm a truck driver. I beg your pardon. From the Republic of Texas. I love your show, sir. I'm up to the colonisation of the world. Episode twelve, and very informed by your presentation. Thank you for these productions. Next one from Melissa Jane, eighty, from Canada. She actually made the effort to get in touch with me and let me know that she'd responded to my appeal for Canadian listeners to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. She's written broad look at history. While most of my history podcasts are on a specific topic, this podcast takes a broad look at the history of the world from ancient times to more modern history. As Chris only in his second season at the time of this review, I have no idea how far he's going to go, but from what I've listened to up until May 2019, He's done an excellent job in his coverage. I hope that he continues for many years to come. Well, if I'm going to complete the project that I've set out to do, it will surely 
last for many years to come. I, I, I don't really, I mean, I originally thought it might be a seven or eight year project. It, it could well be a 10 year project now, looking at how things are turning out. The plan for volume three is probably it's going to be about twice the size of volume two. So uh, there's a lot to get through. Um, Sargon the Great from the USA um, has put, love this podcast. I love relaxing and listening to this podcast. The host researches the subject well, and you can tell he is very passionate about history. Yeah, well, look, I mean, all of you guys are very passionate about your history as well. To be able to sit through these lectures week in, week out, and and get something out of it, you must adore your history. Um, it's not something that anyone listens to if they're not interested in history at all. It's, it's probably the most boring thing on earth. But if you like your history and you're going to sit through it, you you will you will absolutely. I, I will appreciate exactly the feelings that you get from it as well because they're the same ones that I get. So we all love our history, and it's great to be able to share these moments each week couple of uh, little minor updates we've got great web page links uh, I've just tidied the page up a little bit and uh, popped a couple of other things in there as well and um, the other what else have I done oh that's right I've started a tiny cards account now if anyone has like has encountered tiny cards it's a very good little flashcard site and it's good for training for educational purposes really uh, if you use Duolingo, the language learning site, then Tiny Cards is another uh, site that's run by the same people, effectively. And what it is, you can actually go on there and learn and drill like sort of these drills that you use when you're using flashcards, for example, to learn things. So you can actually go on there now, and I've created a set of flashcards that relate to. Uh, ancient art and prehistoric art and ritual so you can actually learn or or get get it drilled into your head what everything is and this can sometimes aid you in any learning any branch out learning that you you choose to um, associate yourself with in the future you your recollection um, power will be a lot higher through using a flashcard. So if anyone's got any ideas of any other flashcard sets that you'd like the History of the World podcast to produce for you or for the community in general, then please, by all means, let me know. Every time I create a new set, it's in the public domain and that could therefore attract new listeners to the podcast. So it's it's, a, it's another little interesting project. Give it a try. Um, you can access it at the moment through the Facebook page. There's a link, but hopefully then I shall uh, create a link on the History of the World uh, podcast website as well. For those of you who follow the History of the World podcast on Twitter, 10 points to Matty Yokomo this week for successfully recognising that Dr Janina Ramirez was posing with the Lion Man from Hollenstein Stardall. So, well done to Matty Yokimo. Anyone that follows on Twitter will know exactly what I mean by that. But the Lion Man from Hollenstein Stadel was a mammoth ivory sculpture from ancient times, from prehistoric times, I should say. Now, the the web page cleanup that I did on the on the links on the great web page links was thanks to uh, a bit of a nudge that I got from one of our listeners from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, her name is Rasha Saimaris so 
thank you for the heads up. She said, um, are there any, uh, could you recommend any visual documentaries? So I have got um, some embedded YouTube links on that page, which can be extremely helpful if you want to learn a bit more about particular things that have been covered on particular episodes of the History of the World podcast. But talking about ways that you can get in touch with the podcasters, so she chose to do that through the Facebook forum. Another, um, another contact that I had this week uh, was a slightly more negative one, I'm afraid to say, and it was from one of my regular listeners who, who often keeps in touch, especially on the Twitter forum, Mr Joel McKinnon, the, the creator of the Planet and Sky rock opera who I've mentioned on a number of occasions in the past. Uh, he said he was not pleased with my choice of profile king or pharaoh, Ramesses II. He said it should have been Thutmose III. He said he was the main man, the, the Egyptian pharaoh who was involved in the Battle of Megiddo from the Thutmose dynasty, the 18th dynasty, where the New Kingdom began. And he's so, he's so important to him that he actually even wrote a song many, many years ago, and the, you can actually listen to this song. It's actually quite good, to be fair to him. This, um, I, will, I, I will ask his permission whether I can post a link to the song on the website, on the Facebook page, and then hopefully um, I will be able to share his song with you. Now, I hope I don't get into too much trouble for making promises about other people's work that are not my place to make promises with, but if he gives me the thumbs up, I'll post the link. He said that Ramesses II was a vainglorious propagandist. Well, I would tend to agree with that. Thanks also to Brian Chase, who spotted a couple of broken links on the website. Thank you for helping me to correct those, Brian. I had a message from Andy Hardy, who contacted us through the History of the World podcast website, said, absolutely fascinated by this series. There's so many little factoids that I love. Learning in this episode that Ashua is where we get the word Asia for Eastern from. The maps on the website are really helpful too. Love your podcast. Thanks. Yes, thank you very much for getting in touch, Andy. Well, I think I've covered everything. There always seems to be a lot to get through at the end of each episode now each week, so hopefully I can find a way to make it a bit more streamlined and condense it down to only what I need to say to you before we sign off. But that's it for this week. Next week, it's the Egyptian religion, all about the deities and how they relate to everything, the pyramids, etc., and uh, that should be a very interesting episode. It should be a lot of, uh, it should be like the adhesive to a lot of what we've already listened to already. So it should be a good educational episode next week. Until that time, have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you again this time next week for more History of the World podcast. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr.